Downtown Frederick is a thriving community with restaurants, mom and pop stores, and bars. There's a vibrant atmosphere, which can be seen standing on the corner of Market and Patrick Streets. On a nice summer day, people jump from store to store or eat outside one of the many restaurants. There are people strolling down the sidewalks, often accompanied by their pets or friends. But if you continue just a little bit farther down on Market, past 2nd Street, near 3rd Street, the atmosphere changes. Many of the buildings are empty. Less people wander this way. They stop and turn around at the Long and Foster, Alderman Ben McShane told me. Even he does. But McShane is looking to address vacant buildings through a new proposed ordinance that will create a registry for vacant properties. So I'm standing outside of City Hall where I just met with Alderman Ben McShane. Now McShane and I just walked around downtown Frederick looking at some of the vacant buildings and some of the buildings that were vacant but only for a little bit. And we talked about why those buildings were able to get new tenants so quickly and while some of the other buildings have been vacant for a year or more. So this seemed like a you know, fun idea to me to have a chance to walk around and actually see a little bit of what we're talking about and understand some of my perspective and some of the reality that our, our city is facing right now and in some instances has been facing for a really long time. So what made you think that they needed an ordinance to try, or try to get a registry of vacant buildings? So I'm well aware that the city has struggled for decades with some properties here and there that just won't come back to life, that have a lot of potential and that have the ability to really energize a block or their their section of town but the properties are just dormant and and vacant for far too long so can you give me an example of it, one of the buildings that's been vacant for a while well let's walk around and we'll look at a few um and just to place this a little bit in the context of things that the city's been working on you know, over the last 10 years the city has had three different commissions with members of the public serve on them to address long-time vacant properties and blighted properties. Each one of those commissions has done a great deal of research. They've generated recommendations and proposals. And I actually was the representative of the city on the third of those commissions that just wrapped up its work in my first a few months of my term that was a year and some ago and that committee that that I sat on had a number of recommendations that had been addressed on the previous ones as well one of those things that we had discussed was having a registry having a way that the city actually tracks long-time vacancy right now the city doesn't even really have a formalized system to keep tabs on these things and that leads to a lot of really problematic scenarios. You know, a leading problematic issue is deterioration of the buildings. And folks at times have decided it's in their best interest as the property owner to just shutter the building and cover up the windows. And as long as nobody can see in here, it doesn't matter how terribly the building is deteriorating. But eventually that leads to a lot of safety problems in that building, in the neighboring buildings, and over time, we've seen things happen, such as on South Market, where buildings sat for so long that eventually 
it was determined they had to come down and there was an attempt to save facades and eventually it was so long that it was determined the facades had to come down for safety concerns and just deterioration through neglect is not a policy that our city can perpetuate so when you have a building that's vacant what does that do to the surrounding area so another problem in addition to the safety concerns about long-time vacant properties is the impact on the adjacent structures impact on the block sometimes impact on the entire neighborhood and the nearby property owners who've also made investments you know, start to see their investments dragged down by these sort of black eyes in the middle of their block and sometimes a block can endure one sometimes it can't other blocks can endure a couple of those missing teeth but eventually and we'll perhaps look at you know some of those examples as we're walking around now it becomes a a case where there's so many missing teeth that the rest of the block just can't keep itself up, can't keep itself economically afloat, and passerbys start to go another way, pedestrian you know, customers start to stop at the block and take a different turn because it starts being perceived as a vacant dead zone. And that really is not fair to those other property owners who are working hard and making investments and trying to energize an area and they just can't overcome it sometimes. And so are there any specific um, streets that come into mind where there are just so many vacant buildings that people just don't walk down them anymore? Well, Market Street up above 3rd is of course an infamous location where this is happening. But I also wanted to stop here and check out a couple of properties where exactly the opposite is happening. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know if you've been into any of these businesses. This is Maxwell's Kitchen. You might remember when this was Rex's that sold hamburgers. It was also a nice place. I used to go there sometimes. Rex is closed. And it took very little time for an investment to be made in Maxwell's Kitchen to open up. You know, this place has great food, comes out pretty fast. My three-year-old was really happy to see that they serve ice cream. It's now on her list of places uh, that she informs me in the car we could stop for ice cream. So this is a great location here at, at 57 uh, on East Patrick, right next door at 55 on East Patrick is where 10th Ward Distilling Company opened up their new location that has a sort of tasting room and a retail area. They've had some events in there. This was also a location that was vacant for very little time. And so quickly, a new tenant moved in and really brought something interesting into this location. So do you think this has to do with the fact that this is a very populated area already that allowed people to come in pretty quickly to open up a new business? I think that these were attractive locations here on Patrick Street, but that many long-term vacant properties on Patrick or on Market Street are also attractive. I think that this block that we just looked at, you know, just here, there was a really nice store here on patrick that sold baby clothes and baby accessories and i think they closed down and those owners own a couple of other stores in town but it took very little time here either for this to open up and be a salon you know that's another great use of this space i don't believe that this block that we're on on patrick is fundamentally different than the block on market or on some other areas of downtown it's the property owners here were eager to find a new tenant 
and they found them very quickly because this is a very attractive place to make investments. The city of Frederick has a lot of interesting businesses opening right now on East Street, out on the Golden Mile. I was just up at the new Warman's Mill Village Center, checking out a couple of businesses that have opened there. There's investments going all over town. I very strongly believe, as were the conclusions of the commissions that assessed vacancy and blight, that it's not a market problem, it's a property owner problem. The market is very interested in these locations all over town. All right, so you have these property owners that are not maybe as quick to get new tenants in. So how are, how can the city encourage them or help them find new tenants? Yeah, so I think if we want to go up and head up onto Market Street, I thought these were some really interesting examples of new fun businesses that have opened up really quickly when spaces became available. Um, but we also have the opportunity only a block or two away to look at some locations that have sat for years, in some cases, decades. All right. So if we go up here onto the next block. Hello, how are you? Um, we've got a couple of examples to see. And uh, then about a block after that, we have a lot of, of long time vacant properties that are really affecting the block and, and the whole neighborhood. Now, is there anything in Frederick that, or I guess any place that hasn't come to Frederick that you'd really like to see come into one of these vacant spaces? In terms of a, a type of business? Yeah. Well, I think that at this point, the city has a really interesting mix. Just focusing on the neighborhood that we're walking around right now, our historic downtown, of different types of retail, different type of service businesses. We have restaurants, we have clothing and apparel retail. We have you know, services such as you know, barbershops and salons and things like that. But we have in no way uh, maxed out all of those, those opportunities. I mean, we have some great restaurants here that I really enjoy going to with, with friends and with my wife, but there's some food that we don't have yet. And I think that people would be happy to move in. Just up here, we're on North Market Street. And of course, we will pass the notorious former Asiana restaurant. And there are folks who I'm sure imagine that what we're doing here and proposing this ordinance is about this property and one similar to it. It's about a good number of properties in the city. This is just one that a lot of people have, have seen for years sit um, vacant, sit dormant, and it does embody a little bit of the problem. Looking over at the Asiana building, I think it's really important to recognize though that all around it, people are trying to make investments. It used to be a restaurant. Just next door is Bella Trattoria. That used to be a Spanish restaurant and they switched over to try a new model. Next to that is Taco Daddy that opened up this last year. That's been really successful. I see lots of folks sitting in there just about every night of the week. You know, a few shops back, Firestones, which has been a great uh, foundation restaurant of this block for many years opened up their raw bar. And that really demonstrates how much demand there is 
for exactly the kind of property that is 123 North Market, the former Asiana restaurant. There's people happy to make investments all around it. I also look just three doors back is now the comic shop. They moved over from Patrick. They needed to leave that location. I don't know if this property that they moved in onto, into on market was available for even days. And there they were moving their comics in. You know, I go in there sometimes and, and poke around. I grew up reading a lot of comics and, and I actually lost a friend about two years ago to cancer who'd been an avid lifelong comic fan. And occasionally I'll, I'll stop in the store and walk around and it helps me feel a little bit of a connection to him to walk around a shop like that that we did so many times together. But I see that and I see how quickly that retenanted. And it's the greatest example of the fact that we have some properties here in our downtown that the issue is not a lack of interest. The issue is not that there aren't investors willing to make, take risks and go for it. The problem is that we have some property owners that are happy for some reason to just let them sit despite years of engagement by the city, by the Office of Economic Development, by various brokers and realtors who've tried to move these properties, tried to make offers to buy or to, to lease them out. And it's just not in the interest of the community. It's not a service to everyone else. They can own those properties, but there is an expectation that everyone participating in the future of the city of Frederick is in it together and are here to create prosperity and economic vibrancy and jobs and activities and things like that and not to just be the one missing tooth in in spite of everyone else's efforts so with this one covered up with all the um, paper on the windows do you think that there is more going on behind that to indicate that the building's unsafe or is it just being sit absolutely there? because the experience of the city for many years has been once the city goes into a structure for some reason or another we find all sorts of problems the truth is structures deteriorate faster than many folks might even imagine water gets in vermin get get in there's various you know things that happen and that that leads to a really unsafe conditions for that building itself, for the adjacent properties, for first responders when they have to eventually show up due to some sort of emergency. But the way that we have things structured as a city now, there's not a lot of instances where the city goes in to do an inspection. And as long as the paper doesn't fall down that's taped over the windows, that deterioration just continues. The ordinance we're proposing would have mandatory inspections. And there would need to be a certificate presented that things were safe and that there weren't really problematic issues in there, such as water getting in, such as uh, problems coming in through the roof. Now, is there anything that is being done um, to help business owners or I guess property owners who maybe can't afford to make all the fixes, any grants that they can apply for? Through our efforts to draft the ordinance, we always wanted to keep in mind that we need to avoid catching good actors in in the net, so to speak, that we're not intending to. And there are, of course, times when someone's property becomes vacant. A tenant moves out, sometimes quite unexpectedly. 
and it takes a little bit of time for somebody new to be found. That's understandable, that's the business cycle, and that's why we built in the timetable that you don't need to register immediately when your property becomes vacant. You'll have a few months to work on it and try to find somebody new, but eventually you'll need to come into the city and register that the property's vacant and you've got to put me on the list. Even at that point, we've set the year one registration fee very low. It's a nominal fee just to submit your application, but even for that whole first year, we're not trying to catch up folks who are just needing a little bit of extra time to get their property ready or find that good fit to move in. The way the ordinance is proposed though, is each year that property owner would need to renew their registration on the vacancy registry. And that fee to renew your registration would increase as the years went on. Eventually, it is understandable that you know, you're not quite making the effort. You're not really trying to find the deal to move someone in. Here we are on the 300 block of North Market. This is another infamous location that a lot of people have had concerns over for years. We're here at the start of the block and we have storefront after storefront that are vacant shells of a downtown. There were times in the city of Frederick, and this is the case in many comparable sized cities around America, where their whole downtown looked like this because they were economically depressed, because there was not interest in, in their old downtown. It was not a vibrant place, it was a ghost town. Fortunately, that's not the case in Frederick. We have a wonderfully active and thriving downtown, yet we have this relic of, of the past. You know, we have space after space these first couple storefronts, the old Carmack J's that has sat for years and years with nothing in there. And it absolutely drags down this block. You know, we just crossed Third Street, and I've heard from far too many people, far too many families, that Third Street, that's where their walk ends. They come up from the creek, and they make it to about the pop shop where they can get a soda or an ice cream or something like that, and they look up the next block and they kind of turn around. The next block is multiple vacant, long-time vacant properties right when you cross this threshold. And you know, it's not really fair to the investments that other people are making. There's other property owners on this block who are really trying. And we've seen some great new businesses open here, some galleries, some salons, some places like that that are trying to bring this block to life. And to an extent, they're doing a great job, but their efforts are limited by the fact that they have some neighbors who just won't participate in being a thriving and prosperous neighborhood. So when you look around these buildings, um, how many, or I guess how many years have some of these buildings sat vacant? We've been looking at buildings, some that have been vacant for two decades. That's completely unacceptable. You know, I understand it takes a few times, and I understand that some of the businesses that might move into these they're not the easiest businesses in the world. You know, my family have been in the restaurant business for my whole life. You know, I've gone to my aunt's and uncle's restaurants and it's a lot of work. It's very rewarding to them, but it's definitely a lot of work. And as we've talked about, they don't always make it. We passed by some locations that one group tried to make a go of it and it didn't quite happen for them. 
but then somebody else moved in right away because this is such a great investment opportunity and a great place to really make that financial investment and also that that personal investment to try to start a business and try to be you know there every day to make something magic happen so what about the one behind us because you can still see like on the walls that it had some kind of painting so how long has this been sitting empty right so some of these were just nearby the one storefront that people refer to as the Cuban place was a business years ago and that has just sat ever since and some of these locations that we're looking at at various times the city has received code complaints or gotten inside some of these structures and found all sorts of problems and it starts you know citations and it has to go through mitigation processes and we're well aware that there are dangerous problems in some of these buildings and we can't just allow dangerous scenarios to to continue around here so with those um, dangerous scenarios that you mentioned is there anything that the city can do in terms of taking the buildings away from property owners there is a process already on the books for receivership that through various rationale the city can go through a lengthy process to have a property in essence taken over by a third party it's not the city taking over the property exactly and someone can repurpose and make improvements and etc and revenue from that process and eventual perhaps sale would go back to that original property owner but it is a mechanism to have someone else take responsibility for that property now the city is also in the process right now of beefing up the receivership ordinance and i think that's a, a fine step to take and making that receivership ordinance more robust could be a good thing but i'm also aware from sitting myself on the most recent blight and vacancy commission that the commission and many folks have felt that the current receivership ordinance already is strong enough to be applicable to some of the properties that we're talking about and it has not been used it's a difficult case to make it's very complicated might be the right solution in some cases but it's in my mind a a long long process and it's only applicable in certain situations and really it ought to be the mechanism of last resort you know, i don't want the city to be taking responsibility taking in a sense possession of someone else's property i think that something such as a registry that allowed the city to track these things that allowed people to maintain control of their property but feel some consequence for not participating in our local community and and economy you know, the increasing registration fee could be used for a lot of things that would help exactly the neighborhood that they're that they're dragging down. You know, we look around on the street here, there's sidewalk repairs, there's intersection repairs. We've got some some spots that we've got missing trees that we could be planting. These sorts of things that can, in a sense, make up for the fact that a property is sitting there as a missing tooth. All right, and in terms of people, have you had people say, oh, I'm interested in opening up a place here, come look at a building like the one we're standing in front of, and say, mm, maybe not, the other buildings are also vacant? Well, I've spoken to 
realtors and people in in that industry who have talked to me about many times that they have engaged the property owners on some of these longtime vacant locations about trying to move someone in as a tenant or trying to make a pitch to buy the property. And in some of these instances, local realtors have almost given up and said, this is just not a a property owner who's acting in good faith. It's a waste of my time. It's a waste of my client's time to even bring them by because they're not interested. They haven't shown any interest in years in actually making a deal happen. All right, so what can be done to make sure those business owners decide, I need to start making a deal. I need to start getting someone in my building. Well, I think that by implementing the ordinance to make a registration, there will start to be some little bit of an economic squeeze on these folks increasing year after year that they remain on the registry in the early years that may not be enough to quite move them but it would be enough for the city to make some improvements in the area after a few years that might be the kind of pinch that they need to say it's not really worth it for me to just sit here with a non-functioning property also i think that the inclusion of the inspections is of vital importance in the ordinance. First, in order to ensure safety for the block, safety for the neighbors, and second, to get in there and really assess what's going on. If we require that these property owners actually maintain their buildings in a safe condition, that may be the incentive that they need to say, you know, if I need to make these improvements or changes inside my structure to make it even safe i might as well make some improvements and i might as well move somebody in because i need to start having some revenue generated from this property because the city's actually going to hold me accountable for the sad shape that my structure's in all right so you have this ordinance and you believe i said believe when we talked earlier you mentioned that's going to be coming up in a next workshop Yes, that is planned for a workshop discussion this coming Wednesday, and I look forward to that conversation. I've sent my proposal around to the, the Board of Aldermen and uh, some city staff and the mayor's office, and they've had a chance to start looking it over and figuring out where they think things might be, might be right, where they think things maybe need a little bit of adjustment based on how they think it would work best. And once we get that conversation started, I think there will be a lot of community interest and stakeholder interest and by working together, I think we can make something really fantastic. All right, and so what are the next steps after that? So that first step of workshopping the, the draft ordinance uh, will be this week. Following that, we will have analysis by various city departments, Department of Public Works will need to assess things, the legal department, the finance department, a lot of different departments will have to decide, you know, how does this, line up with other existing policies. We want to make sure that everything is working with other things that we have in the city. How would we administer some of the aspects of, of the ordinance and the registry? And we'll need that feedback from, from city staff. Much of the ordinance that I've submitted is based on existing ordinances from other places in the state. There are many, many municipalities in the state of Maryland that have comparable policies in place. And we've borrowed a lot of best practices from other municipalities that have made it work where they are. So I think that'll help us move things along considering that we haven't exactly made this up out of thin air. We've taken this from, from other great towns. All right, great. Well, I think that's everything.
Oh, thank you so much for showing me around Frederick. All right, thanks a lot for taking an interest in this and walking around on a beautiful summer day. Well, it's that time in the episode where we talk to features reporter Kate Masters about what's coming up in the next edition of 72 Hours. Okay, Kate, so I just got back from walking around downtown Frederick, and I know your What I Love kind of has to do with some of the buildings that are down there. Yeah, so actually this is a building that is you know, not, not abandoned, but it does have a history as a rent- residential store and is no longer a store. Um, so my What I Love this week is about um, something that is probably very familiar to uh, people who live downtown, but it's the window displays on West Patrick Street. Um, if you go, it's a red brick building right at the intersection of Benz and Patrick. It's like 201, 202 West Patrick Street. And almost as soon as I moved downtown, I started noticing it um, just walking around because it's sort of this plate glass window that looks like it should belong to a store, but it isn't a store. But then at least like five or six times a year there's a new seasonal display so there's holiday displays and you know there's like seasonal displays in fall and winter right now it's a a beachscape scene for the summer with a swimmer kind of escaping a shark and they just it just changes I personally have never seen anyone in the window changing the display so I just kind of wondered well what is this Um, and so I made some calls and I learned that actually um, it is done by a man named Lou Dronin Berg. He's 65. He is retired. And the history of the building is that it used to be a furniture and stove store owned by his grandfather that transitioned to a antique store owned by his father. And when his father passed away in the early 90s, Lou was living next door. He didn't really want to sell the store um, or rent out the space because it was just kind of, it would be complicated to renovate. But he decided to keep the windows going and it's just become this 25-year tradition that he does. Um, And I think it really is, it makes people happy. And so I wanted to write about it. All right, perfect. Well, a beach, a shark. What what else do you need in summer? Right. <laughs> Maybe not the shark. <laughs> <laughs> All right, perfect. So tell us a little bit more about what's going to be in 72 hours this week. Yeah, so I think the cover story will definitely be interesting or to yeah, interesting to the musicians downtown. I wrote about a recent overturn um by the Frederick County Liquor Board of a long-standing regulation that prevented musicians from drinking on stage. Um and I, I guess maybe outside the musical community, it, it doesn't seem like too surprising a regulation, but it really is, um, as far as I can tell, and all the research that everyone has done um, suggests, we're the only county in Maryland to have that type of regulation, so it's unusual. And then it also, at least to the um, two delegates who helped overturned it, who help overturn it, Delegate Jesse Pippi and Delegate Ken Kerr, it kind of didn't make sense because like the way it was set up, there is just, you know, sort of this blanket statement like a musician cannot drink on stage. It was interpreted to include all performers um, and it didn't make a whole lot of sense just because there was no regulation that prevented them from drinking off the stage. So I guess like in theory, it's to prevent, you know, the sort of like raucous, like rock and roll musicians getting wasted on stage and like, 
you know, spilling their drinks and stumbling into the crowd. But I mean, you could technically go and get absolutely smashed like before you perform and then go on stage and like not be able to drink, but it doesn't matter. So the regulation was overturned. Um, And to a lot of musicians I spoke with, it was just kind of a general move in the right direction. Um, Frederick County has kind of been known, at least in the arts community, for having laws that can make it really that seem a little bit, you know, like strict compared to similar counties. So I think it was seen as like a good first step towards loosening some of those laws. Yeah, I was going to say, I was just at a concert at Meriwether and they definitely were drinking on stage. Yeah, like it's, it's actually incredibly rare across the country. And, you know, most like when usually when a, a place does have this sort of thing, it's big news because there have been states that have, you know, passed statewide regulations against drinking on stage. And some bands have just like refused to perform there. And that doesn't seem to be the case in Frederick, but it was just kind of a bummer for like all involved. And, you know, when they were going to overturn this, was it just more of like, hey, it's about time? Or was there something that kind of sparked the two delegates to push for this to be overturned? Well, coincidentally, Delegate Kerr plays in a band. And so he has had experience with this ordinance just in the sense that, you know, he was told that he couldn't drink on stage or like other musicians had been like, hey, you know, okay, you bought this beer, but you can't, you know, take it on stage with you because that's just the rule. And so and Delegate Pippi, for those who might not know, used to chair the liquor board. So he has a pretty deep familiarity with the county's liquor laws, um, is known for, you know, sort of loosening the restrictions on a few of them. And the two of them essentially got together, wondered about this regulation, figured out how it could be overturned and then did it. I had to say, as someone who's spoken with Delegate Kerr just a little bit, I was kind of surprised to hear that he's in a band, and I think we now need to get him on Uncut to come play in Oh, yeah, he should absolutely play a song. (laughs) All right, perfect. So now that we've talked about liquor, I understand that you got to experience a lot of happy hours this week? Yeah, so, like, usually my job does not allow me to leave the office early, but this week was a nice little break because I essentially wanted to offer people a rundown of the best happy hours in Frederick City. There are a lot of them. um, And so I kind of sorted it by category based on my own experience. So all week long, I've kind of been going from restaurant to restaurant, ordering their happy hour to figure out, you know, which one is like the best value versus which one is best for date night versus which one is kind of like has the most relaxed, chillest vibe. So if you're sort of overwhelmed by options, next week 72 is a good place to turn if you're looking for recommendations. And was there anything that stood out among the different places that you went? You know, I think if I'm going to be honest, the most striking one to me um, was Maxwell's Kitchen. I, I think I might have talked about Maxwell's Kitchen on here before. It's the new sort of fast casual offshoot of the wine kitchen. But I put them under best value because their happy hour deals are like absolutely insane. Like from 2.30 to 3.30, Tuesday through Friday, and from 2.30 to close on Thursday, they do this $7 deal where it's you get a burger and fries or a salad and a beer for $7, which is like (laughs) a great value. And the burger is really good. Um, And then, you know, during normal happy hour, happy hour hours, a little bit redundant from 3.30 to 6.30, they do like two for five sliders and, you know, like greatly reduced beers and $3 snacks. So I was surprised because before I started this article, I wouldn't have pegged Maxwell's as like a great happy hour spot, but it definitely is. Very cool. I'll have to check that out. Yes. Um, any other ones that you want to mention? Um, you know, I think 
I can always, I can mention Volt because we went there together and you were nice enough to accompany me on one of my happy hours. And I didn't know again until I started that Thursday was Tiki night at Volt. And I really, really love the Tiki cocktails. I love the kitschy aesthetic. Um, they're a great value, especially considering, you know, how upscale the restaurant is normal is normally so i would definitely recommend if you want the volt experience without you know doing the 125 dollars tasting menu i think happy hour is a good bet awesome and just for, you know for our listeners what is your go-to happy hour drink my go-to happy hour drink so if i if it's a if it's a very basic drink i like gin and tonics my favorite cocktail ever is something called the aviation which again is um i've only been able to find it consistently at volt but it's an old prohibition era cocktail with creme de violette which is not a common ingredient but i absolutely love it it's gym based it's delicious and i would recommend trying it awesome well kate as always, thank you for coming in and talking with us about 72 Hours. And you can read 72 Hours online at fredericknewspost.com every Thursday. It also comes out in print every Thursday, and you can find it on stands. Yes, definitely. Thanks, Heather. Okay, thank you. Frederick Uncut is produced by me, Heather Mangilio, and edited by Graham Cullen. We'll see you next week. Next week.